normal. Good evening. Good evening. Oh, it's so much better. It's fine. We just do it. We always get on the second try. So I mentioned in the church email about a week and a half ago on Ash Wednesday that the season that we're in in the church calendar, the Lenten season, was historically a season when people would train and prepare people in catechism and in the creeds and the confessions in preparation for baptism. And so I thought this would be a kind of a nice time naturally for us to shift the focus of the outpost instead of just doing topical things, but into, I love it so much. It's like, why won't you let me in? But I don't want to come in. Um, <laughs> to, to shift us from more topical things into a, a more serious study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I did this because it's important for us to remember that all churches have beliefs and their beliefs are expressed in different ways. But usually, well, hopefully, one, it's in the manner in which they behave, <laughs> and their beliefs should be expressed there. But for most churches, the way they express their beliefs is in a statement of faith, or they're a part of a particular denomination that has a statement of faith. And these statements of faith may vary. You would see someone on, like where we are on a, what you would consider more orthodox view of, of Scripture and God, and you would have some that are more liberal and, and progressive on the other side. But the, the point is that what a church believes is very critical because that determines the foundation that the church is standing on. And so we studied this in Matthew, so it was chapter 7, so a couple months ago. But at the end of uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, it's important as Christians, but it's important as the body, as the ecclesia, to come together and ensure that we are building upon the foundation of Scripture, that is, Christ is king over everything. And truthfully, I didn't really know that this churches believing different things was as big of an issue as it was until I came back to or I came into the church. I don't really consider the time that I was growing up attending church as my time in the church. Uh, I wasn't in faith in Christ then, but I figured churches were churches, right? Uh, I didn't really know how divided churches' statements of faith could be. I'd made a faulty assumption that churches that came together and proclaimed Jesus Christ all believed in the same thing. My first pastorate, I was at a church that didn't actually believe in the authority of the Bible. Their denomination doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible. My, my, the second church I was at didn't have a foundation or a public statement of faith. They had one that the denomination, but it wasn't something that people actually interacted with. So if you had shown up there, you met a lot of really wonderful people, but you didn't really know foundationally what the church itself actually believed. And of course, we want to ensure that we are hospitable, right? We are a place, we're going to talk about this tomorrow as we tell, walk through Matthew's story at church, the beginning of Matthew's story where he is following Jesus and, and coming and, and, and being saved by Jesus. We're going to talk about what it means when we bring people together, when we eat with sinners. That's what we're doing here tonight. But being welcoming and kind and hospitable does not mean you lack convictions. You don't have to get rid of your convictions to be 
kind and hospitable to people. So we want to ensure that the church has convictions, that people know what those convictions are, while still welcoming in and bringing the sinners in to the church. And of course, we want to make sure that those convictions are based on God's terms, not our terms. And so I wanted to be really clear when we, when we came together as Christ Church, what we as a church believe. And this is, this is what we state. It says, all churches have beliefs. They're expressed through various creeds and confessions. It is these creeds and confessions that define what we as a church believe. The creeds and confessions that form the basis of our faith at Christ Church are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, the definition of a Chalcedon, the Athasian Creed, the 39 Articles of Religion, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you worship with us, or you were here before we were at the body on Sunday mornings, you're probably already familiar with the Apostles' Creed. It's something that we recite every single week in church. That creed is a, a brief statement of our communal faith, similarly with the Nicene Creed, and we recite it together as a community, proclaiming our communal faith together. So things like statements of faith, things like creeds, help us articulate what we believe. They help us know what we believe. And we've talked historically in the church about what it was like before people were literate as well. Even just this last week, I think I mentioned that as little as just over 100 years ago, only 20% of the world was literate. Now we're at 90% of the world was literate. So to learn things, to know things before people could read, you had to memorize them. So if you had concise creeds, concise statements that, that captured all of the pieces of the biblical faith, it was a way that you could transmit that to other people and also yourself know what you believed in. And that's really the big part, right? How are we, how are we to worship something that we do not understand? Now, we can't understand everything about God. There are divine mysteries, obviously. But, but how are we to actively participate in a faith if we do not know what our faith believes in? How are we to claim the title of Christian if we don't know what Christianity is? How are we to believe with wisdom and understanding if we don't get that wisdom and understanding from the Lord? And of course, my questions are obviously rhetorical. You realize that we, we have to have these things from God to know what we believe. But I was thinking about this as I was trying to think about... Here, we can even just do this. Check this out. We'll just drop this down. No, it's okay. We, this is easy. No, no, little fingers. Oops, little stands up. Sorry, we'll fix that. And I banged it over there. It's fine. Don't worry, it's fine. It's... <clears throat> Call that Steinway and Sons guy. He can help us. It'll be just fine. Uh, <laughs> maybe one of his sons will come over. Um, hi, how are you? We should all be as joyful as Sophie on a Saturday night. But I think there's something that's funny that's happened in our broader culture. It, it, especially as technology has increased and people are really jonesing for the next newest exciting thing, the advertising that gets us latched into the next newest most exciting thing is that we have this tendency to venerate the new and toss out the old. We have this tendency as a culture to say, well, if it came before, it probably doesn't have any real value to us now because we're so much more advanced, we're so much more progressive, we have all these tools that people didn't even have 10 years ago. We just literally know more. So out with the old, only in with the new. We see this in the schools, not just the, the public prisons, I mean schools, but, but the, the, the collegiate level as well. We, we watched this shift take place, right? Well, we can't even listen to these old guys. You know, some of those old guys did bad things. 
And so that means that all of their opinions are no longer valid. So we're not going to listen to anything that they have to say. Only these new thoughts, this new information is, is valid. And so this kind of mindset has carried over to us in the world of wisdom as well. We want to just seek wisdom as a culture from newest sources, from the most progressive places, so that we can highlight microaggressions and apologize for things that maybe you didn't even know that you'd possibly done to offend everybody here before you even walked in the door, right? We've moved into new wisdom and away from old wisdom because we believe we believe we know best because we are just so much more enlightened. And of course, if you had been here for Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes had warned us about all of these kinds of things. He usually gave us the term vanity, the breath of a wind, <laughs> to let us know how these things actually really pan out. But you see, it's true. There is really nothing new under the sun. And when we chase the wrong things, when we seek wisdom, when we seek knowledge, when we build our foundation on the wrong things, it leads us to a life that is vanity. And of course, we can see what the outcomes of that look like by looking outside, looking at the world outside of us. This is the world that we see that promotes sin. We see it being encouraged, it being glorified. There are churches that participate in this. We see broken families, increased violence, mental health issues. Matthew and I were just talking about that earlier. We've got boys that want to be girls and girls that want to be boys, and the list goes on and on and on. So what are we actually to do? Well, I think what we are to do is we're actually to rewind a little bit. We should look back at the wise people that came before us. Especially considering that some of the wise people came before us didn't have the distractions that we have today. That when they were able to study and focus, they didn't have as many. And I'm not talking about dogs squeaking the toy distractions. I'm talking about the world of continuous scrolling and screens distractions that we all have. And I think we should make sure that we aren't limiting our focus in wisdom and life to current scholars and current approaches to things because that's just silly. Because there really is nothing new under the sun, right? And if we are as a church committed to building Christendom and educating all of you, all of us, we need tools and resources to do that. And of course, the best place to start are the is with the people that came before us to look at the ancient church and to think about, especially when we think about the Protestant Reformation, what our church leaders fought for. And, and many times the men who were fighting to ensure that we had access to the accuracy of Scripture available, they lost their lives. They were martyred for this. I just finished this book by Glenn Sunshine called Slaying Leviathan. It's about Christian resistance theory. It's really interesting. But it, it talks about the political landscape during the Protestant Reformation, which I really knew nothing about. I knew not, my medieval politics was, 15th, 16th century politics was, you know, this big at best, and now it's like that big, <laughs> a little bit more. But he was showing and giving, providing real examples of what it was like for the men and the women who stood firm and fought for their faith against tyrants who lost their lives to stand firm for their faith. But they were standing firm on one thing. It was the sufficiency of Scripture. They were uh, uh, their faith in God alone. In, in Christ's redeeming power alone. And they were fighting it against a modern church that wanted control and power and wanted to be able to tell people what was right and wrong, even if it contradicted what Scripture said. There's really nothing new under the sun. We see the exact same thing taking place today. And so that brings us to why we're here. 
we are a confessional church. That's what it says in our statement of faith. What it means is that we adhere to creeds and confessions. And the question is, why? 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 Why adhere to creeds and confessions? Why publicly say these are, are, are the foundations of what we build theologically, what, what we believe and build our church on? Well, I think one reason is because they bind us to a foundation of Scripture, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And then they also connect us to the universal church before us and the universal church after us. Also, they speak in more eloquent words than I can speak to you in about what we believe. And there's something beautiful about eloquence. There's something beautiful about, we were talking earlier about art. We just, Sophia and I just finished Francis Schaeffer's Art in the Bible. It's like 98 pages. Maybe it's 110. You should, maybe that'll be next month's church book. It's so good. And Schaeffer talks about, because in the early Protestant Reformation, and even in some Protestant churches now, no pictures that could ever have Jesus on it could ever be put anywhere because, oh my gosh, that could be idolatry. It's silliness. Silly. Schaefer takes this idea and talks about the difference between idolatry and art, but also talks about the Christian artist's job in beautifying the environment, whether or not the picture has Jesus in it or not. It could be, it could be a picture of a bowl of fruit, but it can still glorify God. Schaefer, I was trying to remember, I, like I, I detoured, but the notes got me back. But Schaefer had a way of, of using art eloquently, more eloquently than I ever could. I'm, I'm a math guy. Art doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. That's beautiful, though. Rembrandt, Rembrandt's my jam. <laughs> but the same with these creeds, especially the creeds, Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, there's eloquence in words that are more eloquent than I can use that can articulate the foundation of what we believe. So everything we're going to study, we're not going to start this week, we're going to start next week. Everything we're going to study is proof-texted in Scripture, which is important. These aren't just somebody's ideas, somebody's words, somebody's summaries. Everything that we're going to study is proof-texted in Scripture, and we're going to use those proof-texts back and forth. We study the catechism here in our family worship. We read a one catechism question at the end of our family worship. We, have, we pray. If you guys give us names to pray, pray in the prayer list, that's where we pray for those. And then we work through a book of the Bible. Right now we're in Romans. Then we do a little bit of catechism, and then we sing, and then we pray. It's a really wonderful time together as a family. But the same thing with the catechism is it's proof text. We read the question and the answer, and then we read the proof text that go along with it. So it helps understand and tie these things together and also increase everyone's knowledge in Scripture. And of course, we take this concept from a verse that we've read, these two verses that we've read here many times, which is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So... That's the point of why we're going to study the Westminster Confession of Faith, because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The more we learn, the more we study, the more we impress these things upon our, our hearts and our minds and our tongues, the more we can carry them with us and go and build all of Christ for all of life. And so the hope is that this motivates you to ask questions. And it should motivate you to ask questions with things you maybe disagree with or, or things that you maybe find challenging. I have small notebooks. There's a handful of them there. I will have them here every week. You can take one. There's pens, uh, the tiny little moleskins. I thought I had ordered bigger ones, but they sent me tiny ones, so those are the ones we're using. But I want you to study and take notes. Write things down that cause you to pause. Maybe it causes you to pause in a good way. Maybe it causes you to pause in a bad way, and you're like, that, 
that rubs me the wrong way because those are things that we can come back to and chew on, chew on deeper. We're going to take this slow like we do books of the Bible on purpose. One, because time-wise, that is a good use of our time so we can also feast and fellowship. But because I want us to slowly chew through this. I have books I can buy, and I'm going to buy more. So if you would like a copy that has the catechisms and the Westminster Confession of Faith and the creeds in it, I, I think I put it in the email, but they're like 31 bucks. I'll order a handful of them this week. If you guys want one, shoot me an email. Let me know tonight, and I'll make sure there's some here in a couple weeks as well. So, okay, to wrap us up, and then we'll, we'll get to the chicken, which is going to be amazing. Now that you kind of know the why, the question is, what is this? What is a creed or a confession? So... The definition basically says these are just definitions or declarations of belief made by an individual or a group. They are authorized formulas of Christian doctrine. They're not canon, but they're formulas of Christian doctrine. So then what is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is what we are going to be studying? And it says the Westminster Confession of Faith is the result of the meeting of the Westminster Assembly. Go figure. That met during the English Civil War between 19, or 1642 in 1649 to chart a course for the reform of the Church of England. So this is taking place during the Protestant Reformation. And Joel Beakey, pastor and a theologian, sums it up really well, I think. He says, The confession of faith produced by the Westminster divines, the people that met, has undoubtedly been one of the most influential documents of the post-Reformation period of the Christian Church a carefully worded exposition of 17th century Reformed theology. The calmness of its sentences largely hides the tempestiousness of the political backcloth against which it was written. People were dying for their faith during this time. The Westminster Assembly was convened in 1643 after years of tension between Charles I and his increasingly Puritan Parliament. Meeting under the championship of the learned William I think it's Twissy, against the king's express wishes, its original version was to affect closer uniformity of faith and practice throughout his realm. The original task of the delegates was to revise the 39 articles of the Church of England. But following the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant, this developed into the more specific and exacting task of framing the theological and ecclesiastical formulas that would bring the Church of England into conformity with the doctrine and practice of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Ministerial delegates from the Kirk, if you've noticed our website, says Christ Kirk Denver. It's the Scottish term for a Presbyterian Reformed Church. The ministerial delegates from the Kirk, who declined to become members of the assembly, were ecclesiastical statesman Alexander Henderson, the high Calvinistic theologian and exponent of Reformed piety Samuel Rutherford, the extraordinarily gifted young George Gillespie, and the fascinating Robert Bale in whose letters and journals we find snapshots of the assembly's activities and personalities. For all practical purposes, these Scottish delegates constituted the most powerful group among those who gathered in the chapel of Henry VII and later in the Jerusalem chamber at the Westminster Abbey, London, during the years of discussion and debate from 1643 to 1649. The various documents composed by the assembly proceeded through a, a process of committee work in the afternoons, followed by plenary discussion, the Presbyterians love committees, uh, on the floor of the assembly in the mornings, with a regular additional gatherings for worship, fast days, and the like. The end result was that the divines produced one of the truly monumental documents of church history, which has instructed, directed, and profoundly influenced the Presbyterian churches worldwide ever since. 
Westminster Confession of Faith represents a high point in the development of federal theology. Its inner dynamic is powerfully covenantal. We look at all of the history of the church and the world and God as one covenant, because it begins as a covenant at the very beginning. It's called covenantal theology. It's divided into 33 chapters. It carefully covers the whole, the whole range of Christian doctrine, beginning with Scripture as the source of knowledge of divine things. That's what we're going to start out with next week. Why do we have the books that we have? How do we get those? Why are they canon? Following the first and second uh, Helvic Confessions, the formula of the Concord and the Irish Articles, continues with an exposition of God and His decrees, creation, providence, and the fall, before turning to expound the covenant of grace, the work of Christ, and at length the application of redemption, our salvation. Careful attention is given under the various chapter headings to the questions of law and liberty, as well as the doctrine of the church and the sacraments, and of the last things. It covers everything from start to finish. While the confession was composed by disciplined theological mind, it also displays the influence of men with deep pastoral, experiential, and preaching experience. It is an outstanding expression of classical Puritan Reformed theology framed for the needs of the people of God. So that's what we're going to talk about, and it's going to be a blast. And I want you to bring a lot of questions. So we're going to work through this confession together as long as it takes us to work through the confession. My hope for us is it gives you a more detailed idea of what we believe as a church, but also that it stirs questions and, and a deeper love for the Lord and His Word with all of you. I hope there's times where it makes everybody here uncomfortable. It should, and that's good. And I hope it's an encouragement to everybody here about the past. Proverbs 4, 7 through 9. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. That's smart. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Price her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. You see, our goal as a church is to grow in wisdom, to grow in godly wisdom. And we do that together. But it must be wisdom that is based upon the foundation of God's holy word. Proverbs 3, 13 through 20 says this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to all those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds drop with dew. My goal is for us to grow in wisdom, in God's wisdom as the people of God. And I think we'll do that as we study this incredible confession of faith together. So I'm going to put in the weekly outpost email what chapter we're going to be working on, or the weekly church email, I should say. And then if you have a desire to read ahead, I would encourage you to. If you'd like a book, let me know at the end tonight, and I'll make sure we get one ordered for you. We're going to do chapter one, the first paragraph next week. And with that, let's get up, let's sing, let's pray, and then most importantly, let's feast.